And welcome to an exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. I am your host, Jonathan Hall. Today in the virtual studio, I have Will Button with me. What's going on, everybody? And we're really excited to have our special guest, Connor Hicks. Welcome, Connor. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Would you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why maybe you know something about DevOps or tech and why you're here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so my name's Connor. I founded a company called Suborbital. We are working in the WebAssembly space, specifically using WebAssembly on the server to let you run plugins and untrusted third-party code inside your application. I've been working in cloud and DevOps for oh, I don't know, five or six years now. And I feel like I've, I've run the gamut of all the different things uh, that, that there are to do out there. But our my latest fascination is is running WebAssembly on the server, but specifically on an edge network and uh, playing with things like Anycast and, uh, you know, globally replicated compute. It's all uh, very hip and fun right now. And we are uh, knee deep in it. Awesome. You just mentioned a, a word that I think, or a phrase that I think would be really good to clarify. Because uh, I mean, I have, I think I know what it means, but I might be wrong. And if I might be wrong, I'm sure a lot of our audience don't know what it is. So can you explain the edge and edge computing? What What is that? Yeah, this is not a well-defined term by any means. And people have been overloading it for a while now. And yeah. uh, the way we think about edge is having kind of two parts. So there is the edge device category, right? Edge devices are things that are running inside of a warehouse or it's your your phone in your pocket or it's a sensor on a tractor. This is something that is physically in a location and it is generating or consuming data. And then the other half of edge is what we call the edge cloud. And these are just servers that are very close to the things communicating with them. And so If you look at a company like Cloudflare, they run an edge cloud where they have, you know, 200 plus regions around the world so that whenever you're talking to Cloudflare, you're always talking to a server that's close by. This is only half of the equation. It is the part of the equation that we, you know, deal with the most. But the other half is those, you know, edge and IoT devices that are actually running 
in a particular locale. And so we we like to clarify it that way because you say edge and sometimes people say, oh, you're an IoT company. No, that's not what we're doing. Uh, we're doing the other half of it. So does edge imply IoT? I mean, you're not doing the IoT part of it, but I mean, you're, you're talking to IoT devices or is, is there another form of edge that has nothing to do with IoT also? Yeah, so you can combine edge devices with edge cloud, but they uh, they can either be two parts of the same system or they can be used for completely different things. And so, you know, in the Cloudflare case, they are serving web traffic to humans using a laptop or a phone close by. So there's no IoT part of that story. But, you know, if you look at the edge devices scenario, that's that's where IoT comes in. And, you know, edge devices may or may not be combined with an edge compute network. Okay. I think it's clear as mud now. How about you, Will? You understand it perfectly? You know, when you asked him to explain a term that maybe not everyone knows, I thought you were going right for DevOps. And I was like, oh, finally. (laughs) (laughs) If only someone could explain it to me. (laughs) I I wanted to stick to the easy questions to start with. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. So you're the the third guest we've had talking about WebAssembly from a DevOps context. And each week, uh, I come away getting more and more excited. So can you... Can you give me like like what's the what's the big fascination with running WebAssembly out on the the edge server network? Yeah, totally. So we have a saying where you know WebAssembly has these these three properties: uh, security, performance, and portability. And these three aspects made it a really well suited technology for web browsers because that's where WebAssembly started. When you're running code in the web browser, it's always untrusted code. It's always code that you're just pulling from some random URL. You have no idea what it may want to do and you need good protection. And so when engineers wanted ways to run languages other than JavaScript in the browser, they tried a whole bunch of different wacky things, but we've ended up with WebAssembly because it is a sandboxed runtime for bytecode. And that bytecode can be generated from a whole bunch of different languages. So you can compile C code to it. You can compile Go code, Rust, whatever. And it will maintain those sandboxing properties that are really, really useful for web browsers. But we needed a way to do that without sacrificing performance, right? We wanted to be able to run C code without it being super sluggish because C is not supposed to be sluggish. (laughs) And so... WebAssembly was the result of all of this work. And just because it was designed for a web browser doesn't mean that it's not useful in other places. And so taking those, you know, three really nice properties, some very smart folks started developing WebAssembly runtimes that were decoupled from the web browser. So we want to be able to take advantage of the speed, right? High performance code. We want to take advantage of the security, these really tight sandboxing properties of WebAssembly. And we want to take advantage of portability, i.e. being able to run this piece of code that you've compiled absolutely anywhere without needing to worry about, oh, is it ARM? Is it x86? Is it Linux? Is it Windows? We wanted something universal. And so all of those properties also lend themselves really well to the server. Right on. Whenever you do this, are you, you know, we were talking about IoT things earlier from the server side of this equation, though, what are the resource constraints? Can you like configure as much CPU and memory resources as you need and, and disk space? Or are you kind of operating in a, a tighter environment? Yeah, so this is something that's evolving all the time. And uh, so there are some memory constraints on WebAssembly, uh, but they are 
quickly being removed. The wonderful thing about WebAssembly and the sandbox that it runs in is that you do get very fine-grained control over all those things. What disk is it able to use? How much CPU bandwidth is it allowed to have? And and how much virtual memory are you allowed to, to use? And because you're not directly running a program on just a bare CPU and letting it run rampant, we have a lot of these controls. And so that's one of the one of the features that makes it really good for edge computing because we're orienting our use of WebAssembly for the most part around smaller ephemeral pieces of compute, like what is traditionally known as a cloud function. And so these things are spinning up and, and being torn down potentially thousands of times a second. And so it's really useful for us to be able to say, hey, we, w- we want to have the capacity to run 10,000 of these things concurrently on this one box. Let's make sure we limit each individual one to this slice of memory and, and computing power that it's allowed to have and be very sure that, uh, you know, one module won't uh, suck up all the air in the room and make it hard for the, for the other modules on the system to, to get their time. Right on. So that sounds very much along the lines of of my experience in implementing DevOps is defining the the operating environment, you know, and what resources it has available to to it. What tools exist to support this? Like, is this something you can build with Terraform or do I see to control? Yeah, so we haven't really come on to a agreed upon paradigm, I guess, for, for yeah. running WebAssembly in the cloud yet. What is interesting is that, and I don't know if this is a coincidence or if this is intentional, but a lot of the folks who are interested in WebAssembly on the server also seem really interested in things that are not Kubernetes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and In other know, words, they have Kubernetes experience. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. And I think one of the big reasons for that is, is it's not even that Kubernetes is bad or that Kubernetes is too much or any of those things. It's just that WebAssembly and containers just are operationally quite different, right? WebAssembly, it's not an operating system. It is not really resembling a container except from a really like 10,000 foot view. A WebAssembly module is not, you know, a micro VM and is not something that looks like a virtual machine or a container. It is more like just a single program. So, you know, whereas in a container, you might have a curl binary and a wget binary. A WebAssembly module is more akin to just one of those executables inside of a container. So you can combine WebAssembly with with a container. Uh, you can run WebAssembly outside of a container because of the way it's sandboxed. Uh, you, you do have a lot of flexibility there, but I think there's a, a general sentiment that we don't necessarily need Kubernetes in order to take advantage of WebAssembly on the server. And so the thing that people seem to be very interested in right now for running WebAssembly on the server is HashiCorp Nomad. Um, so we're using it. I believe our friends at Fermion and Cosmonic are also using it pretty heavily. And uh, I think it it lends itself pretty well to what we're trying to do here. Right on. So I'm curious to dig in a little bit more to a topic. You, you already started to talk about it, but you mentioned it, that the three, I don't remember what they all were, but the three characteristics of WebAssembly, one of those you mentioned was security. Mm-hmm. How is it the WebAssembly is inherently secure or or is it? Or you know, wh- what do you mean by that? Like, wh- Why would WebAssembly more, be more secure than running Ruby or JavaScript or whatever other random language I might choose. Yeah, totally. So WebAssembly is designed to be inherently secure. And that is by way of a deny by default capability system. So if you look at a any old program, 
that program is making syscalls, right? It is asking the operating system for stuff, whether it's access to a file or a socket or whatever. Every program is making system calls to to get access to resources. And in the WebAssembly world, you don't just get free-for-all access to those system calls. You can't just ask the operating system for a, for a file handle and just be given it by default. The WebAssembly runtime actually gives you access to nothing. So by default, if you haven't explicitly granted the access to a particular file or a particular network resource, uh, you are completely blocked from accessing that resource. So when you're configuring the WebAssembly runtime, you have to go in and say, okay, I'm going to run this module and I'm going to give it access to this directory. I'm going to give it access to, you know, this port. And when it uses that port, it's allowed to access these things. And you have to be very explicit about it. And because of this, it really stops malicious code from being able to do much of anything without your explicit permission. So if I download a WebAssembly module and it has, you know, a crypto mining feature to it, call it a feature, call it a bug, whatever. <laughs> um, if I haven't explicitly given that module access to, you know, whatever blockchain it needs to talk to, it won't be able to do its job. And so I can protect my infrastructure or I can protect my computer from those kinds of malicious attempts at, you know, doing something nefarious and still allowing my code to do what I intended that code to do, which is maybe talk to a specific API or connect to a specific database or read a specific set of files um, while being very, very sure that it can't go outside the bounds of what I've allowed. So it sounds like this is really a feature of the of the runtime more than like the language spec itself. Is that it a fair is, distinction? It is a very tight concert between the WebAssembly bytecode and the runtime the the difference between WebAssembly as a specification and a WebAssembly runtime is very blurry. And the the nice thing is that the specification actually covers all of it. Um, so the the way that virtual memory is handled, the way that uh, you know handles are given to code to access things outside of the sandbox, all of these things are very well documented, and anybody can go and implement the specification. So there are multiple different. WebAssembly runtime implementations that you can choose from both in the browser and outside of the browser. And so that's really nice for us because it means that, you know, we have a very well documented set of guarantees about how these programs are supposed to behave. And it is really a, just a, a nice collaboration between the WebAssembly bytecode of the actual module itself and then the runtime that's being executed in. They work together to, to ensure we uh, have these security guarantees. So I suppose that's different from like jails or any other sort of virtualized sandbox or whatever, where you, you know, maybe block file system access or you block network access, just in that it's, there's no surprises for one thing, because okay. you, you expect that, that, that those boundaries will be there and unless they're removed, rather than the, the reverse, where you expect no boundaries. You expect a, a CH mod to work, and, and when it doesn't, like, what? So that yeah. would be one difference. And I suppose the other difference, uh, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I would imagine that the API is just simpler and more straightforward in WebAssembly than it is on any random operating system <laughs> where yeah. you have access to everything and you know, even hardware interrupts and everything like that. Yeah, that's right. There are parts of WebAssembly and, and WASI, which is the WebAssembly system interface, that were modeled after POSIX, but it's not directly tracking how POSIX works because there is a lot of legacy baggage in POSIX and, and all those sure. designs. And so they wanted to emulate the good parts of POSIX while still bringing in some you know new simplicity and some, some new explicit characteristics that POSIX never had. 
So POSIX, the good parts book to complement the JavaScript, the good parts book. Okay. <laughs> Coming soon right. from O'Reilly, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody should definitely write that. It's, it should be entitled WebAssembly, the good parts of POSIX. <laughs> <laughs> so you work specifically with edge computing. When should somebody consider... The question I always ask is, when should somebody use this? Whatever mm-hmm. this is. In this case, let's say it's WebAssembly... Uh, for edge, the edge. Did you call it the edge cloud? Is that is that the right ordering yeah. of phrases? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can call it edge compute. You can call it edge cloud. I think all of those are interchangeable. So, so actually, maybe before I ask that question, what alternatives are there? What other things are people doing that you're suggesting uh, this is a better solution? Yeah. So uh, there's two answers to that question because we we do run an edge network, but we are using that edge network specifically for running plugins. And so there's the what are the alternatives for the plugins answer, and then there's what are the alternatives for the WebAssembly on the edge answer. Okay. I'll probably focus on the you know WebAssembly on the edge part because this is a DevOps podcast. So the biggest alternative right now is JavaScript isolates. The big names of like Cloudflare and Dino are using JavaScript isolates to accomplish a similar task as uh, WebAssembly would serve. So when you are using Cloudflare workers or when you're using Dino Deploy, they are spinning up essentially a tiny little fraction of the V8 JavaScript engine and they are executing your code within that little isolate or, you know, you can think of it like a jail or, or something like that. And that is currently the most popular way to run an edge network. And part of the reason there is is a lot of the same properties that make WebAssembly good have also been exhibited in V8 because V8 is probably one of the best tested and most trusted pieces of code out there because it runs Chrome, right? All of the JavaScript uh, that is executed in Chrome is executed in, in V8. And so, you know, Cloudflare just open sourced their implementation of V8 called Worker D, and it is the thing that allows them to run untrusted JavaScript. However, if you look at the Worker D GitHub repo, you'll see that they they note that just running Worker D by itself, just running a V8 isolate by itself, is not sufficient to ensure you can't have any malicious code, you know, wreaking havoc in your infrastructure. They also, in their infrastructure, when they run it in the Cloudflare Workers Cloud, they have to add additional layers on top, and that's that's not part of the open source project. That's out of scope, and that that's you know obviously very understandable. Um, but it just goes to show that. You know, JavaScript by itself and a JavaScript engine by itself is not enough to satisfy the security requirements of running untrusted code. Whereas WebAssembly has a better starting point uh, for that problem. And so it's much easier to take a WebAssembly runtime and use it for that, for that purpose. There are a bunch of different concerns when you're comparing these two. So performance, language support, all these kinds of things they differ and it really depends on the problem you're trying to solve, right? So Cloudflare's done a great job of being able to, you know, serve edge requests for web apps. And a lot of web developers are JavaScript developers. And therefore, you know, running an edge function written in JavaScript that's connected to your web application that's also written in JavaScript makes perfect sense. And that's why it's become so popular. But when you look at uh, what we're trying to do with plugins, not everybody who writes backend systems is a uh, JavaScript developer. There are a lot of Go, Rust, you know, and other and Python developers, etc. And so we think that WebAssembly has a better, better overall support for a wider variety of languages, while still giving us those, uh, you know, security and performance guarantees 
And that's why you know we decided to to build our platform on top of WebAssembly. Nice. So yeah, then then to the question that led to that one, when does it make sense for somebody to consider WebAssembly for their own problem, whatever they're trying to solve, especially if they're in this edge uh, computing space? And you've already touched on some of the answers related to security and so on, but just more, a little bit more specifically, what litmus test maybe would you use if you're debating WebAssembly versus something else? Yeah, so I think the litmus test is, you know, do I have a security need that trumps my ability to, you know, just run something in a Kubernetes cluster, right? That is the biggest reason why you would use WebAssembly. If you are scared to run something because you're worried about the effect it could have on your system, you should probably run it in a WebAssembly container instead of running it in a regular container. And Third-party code is the best uh, example of this. Running explicitly, like accepting third-party code from any random person and then running it in your cluster is terrifying. Um, And I would never, you know, just Python, you know, start a random third-party script inside of my own Kubernetes cluster. I would never do that. So that is the number one thing that would push you over to WebAssembly. Now, I think over the next couple of years, what we'll see is that the performance story will also start making a lot of sense. So if you need to run, you know, a ton of parallel ephemeral functions, Lambda style serverless compute, WebAssembly is going to become the most attractive option because it is going to be a standardized runtime across a bunch of different languages that let you run these very fast. Like maybe they're only alive for a millisecond or 10 milliseconds, but you need to run thousands of them or hundreds of thousands or millions of them all at the same time. WebAssembly is going to start looking really, really attractive because you have so much less overhead compared to using a container or a micro VM where those things take you know, tens or hundreds of milliseconds just to start up, whereas a WebAssembly module can be run and done in, you know, one millisecond. Hey, folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, I mean, it seems like a lot of things these days are kind of pushing us more toward productivity, right? We install VS Code extensions, we do CICD, we kind of get this stuff off our plate, automate as much as we can, and move quickly. And one of the tools that I tell people to get is something like Raygun. Uh, Do you want to just explain real quick how Raygun can help with the productivity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's several fold. I like to think of Raygun as um, almost being like a full-time engineer on your team that's keeping an eye on things and is able to report the important faults or performance bottlenecks so that you aren't guessing. Um, And so that's one element. But then to that point where we store all of the data we possibly can uh, on the context of the error or performance issue so that you know, we integrate with source control systems. You can jump into our APM and get method-level timing details with the source code right beside it. So if you're looking at it going, why is this page so slow? You know, um, you can usually just eyeball the code right there and then. So speeding everything up, which I think is really important with, you know, our industry is under so much pressure right now. Yeah. You know, um, you know, we've got to try and get people be more efficient because we, we're not going to have a whole lot more people suddenly. Right. Absolutely. And I, I just I love that idea. I've done plenty of optimizations myself. Right. And having an APM tool that will actually say, yeah, uh, this is the slow code. Right. So instead of me trying to guess or look at it and go, oh, do I have an N plus one query here? Yeah. It just tells me where the problem is. And that's really powerful in something like Raygun or yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Iron Man. And, and you know, the, the, the idea is that I would love a virtual Jarvis that's just going, hey, there's this <laughs> thing. Do you want me to go fix this? Do you want me to solve yeah. that? It's like, that, that's what we need to get to. Yep, absolutely. Well, if you want uh, the next best thing, go to raygun.com. Yeah, it's not Jarvis, but it, 
It will tell you where the problem is. So you can go fix it. You can get a free trial right now if you want. It's raygun.com. So you got me thinking about you know, running untrusted code. Since so many other languages can compile down to WebAssembly, does it help if you want to run untrusted code written in another language? Maybe you have, let's say JavaScript, because that's a simple, that's a, that's a common thing. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, tools have some sort of way to create JavaScript plugins or or snippets or whatever. I, I imagine that running compiling that JavaScript to WebAssembly and then executing it in WebAssembly is safer than running it in V8. What are the implications of all of that? Yeah, totally. So we have started to see a a surge in people running JavaScript inside WebAssembly. And it sounds kind of counterintuitive because in the browser, you run WebAssembly inside JavaScript. Yeah. Uh, so it seems a little backwards. But what we're able to do is we're able to take the entire JavaScript runtime, compile that to WebAssembly, and then give it some JavaScript code to run. So there are two main interpreters that are currently being used inside of WebAssembly. There's QuickJS, and then there's SpiderMonkey. Uh, SpiderMonkey is the Firefox uh, version of V8. And so by adding this extra layer of sandboxing, you can basically take this untrusted JavaScript and just throw it into the sandbox and let it try to do whatever it wants to do, but only allow it to do the things you wanted to allow it to do. Mm -hmm. And so this is awesome. And you get some really good, you know, security properties from that. But, you know, there are some performance concerns to be had there because, you know, with these, with these JavaScript engines, we are, doing, you know, just-in-time compilation. We're doing all sorts of different optimizations to make sure that that JavaScript is running fast. And those are the kinds of code generation problems that don't currently work 100% as well inside of WebAssembly as it does outside of WebAssembly. Mm -hmm. That is getting, you know, infinitely better because there's a lot of WebAssembly spec improvements that have come through in the past year or two that are making those types of things much more efficient. So Fastly, for example, their Compute at Edge product runs SpiderMonkey inside of WebAssembly on their edge network. And so they are able to do a lot of the same things that Cloudflare can do with V8, except they have this additional layer of security around everything. And so while Cloudflare has probably spent you know millions of dollars hiring a huge security engineering team to make sure that they're locking down that V8 engine, Fastly's having a bit of an easier time with it because they have the security of guarantee, uh, security guarantees of WebAssembly wrapped around their JavaScript engine from the start. Nice. So you can run WebAssembly and JavaScript and JavaScript and WebAssembly. Mm -hmm. And after Will completes his promise from last week's episode, we'll be able to run Kubernetes in the browser with WebAssembly. Uh, This looks like a great uh, house of cards uh, we're building. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody recently was able to run WordPress in the browser using WebAssembly, uh, which is an absolute feat. Uh, I I used to work (laughs) for WordPress. And so I know what a behemoth that uh, ends up being. But yeah, there's all sorts of different uh, crazy use cases that you can enable when you have this secure sandbox that can just pretty much run anything. It's it's almost as if we're working on machines that are like able to emulate each other. We need a mm-hmm. term for this. Like maybe we could name it after Alan Turing, who invented right uh, this this sort of like concept. Yeah, but like you you say that it's uh, but like WebAssembly is almost like a virtual CPU, right? It is right. an instruction set that you can target that is completely agnostic to any of the hardware platforms out there, which is just an incredibly useful tool to have at your disposal because I can build a WebAssembly module and then without recompiling it, I can run it on ARM, I can run it in the browser, I can run it on x86, I can run it in a container. It's just a very flexible thing to be able to do. What's the learning curve of this security model look like? Because we have a lot of tools, you know, that that have powerful security built into them. But 
in terms of like practical application, a lot of people can't find the documentation or the instructions or the advice that they need to set the security model up right so they just end up like giving root permissions to everyone because I can't get it to work otherwise. So what's that world look like in WebAssembly? Totally. So that I think is where WASI comes in. So WASI is the WebAssembly system interface and it is a set of these bindings, right? It is a set of these host capabilities that are being standardized in the the W3C. And what WASI allows us to do is essentially have a commonly agreed upon set of guardrails that you can enable on the WebAssembly runtime. So you can think about it like like layers. You know, the WebAssembly runtime is at the bottom. By default, it has no permissions. When you enable WASI on the runtime, it opens up these, you know, well-defined and, you know, well-tested capabilities, such as accessing files, such as accessing the network. And it gives relatively easy to understand knobs that you can twist and turn to control how those capabilities behave. Now, you can go further than that. You can add capabilities beyond what WASI enables. And that's, and that's what we do in our platform is we do WASI++. Uh, so WASI plus additional capabilities. But by default, you know, if you're just, uh, you know, compiling uh, Rust code to, to WebAssembly and then executing it, uh, just by enabling WASI, you can get a lot of useful things like being able to access randomness or the system clock. These are all things that are included, you know, in the WASI specification where you can turn them on, you know that they've been well tested and you know that they are implemented correctly. And so you can get probably 90% of the useful system calls that you need while still having, you know, the, the knobs and, and levers to, to play with, such as only granting file access to particular directories or particular files. But you don't have to implement all of those host calls yourself because they've been pre-implemented in the WASI, uh, in the WASI libraries. And so that's the great starting point for everybody. And I find that it is really helping with the learning curve. But if you want to go beyond that, like what we've done by adding additional things on top of WASI, that's where the learning curve does start to spike pretty heavily. And I think that will improve with something called the component model that is being worked on right now. And that is the ability to essentially declaratively define what uh, a module needs to import in order to operate and what it exports in terms of, you know, the, the methods and functions available in the me- in the module. And so when this component model is, is done and, and we're pretty, we're getting pretty close to that, you will be able to look at a WebAssembly module and say, Hey, this thing needs access to these files. It needs access to this network capability. It needs access to something that provides randomness and crypto capabilities. And so I'm going to explicitly enable those few things that this module needs. And I know that this module provides to me these five or six functions uh, that I can call from it. And so this is going to be a standardized way for anybody to understand what a module imports and what it exports. uh, And that's going to make things a lot easier. When you say we, are you referring to a suborbital or like the, the WASI open source committee? The collective we, I think the the entire WebAssembly community. Cool. And where's um is there like where's the starting point for the that community? Is there like a website or yeah, so there's two main things that I would point people towards. There is a WebAssembly Discord server uh, where a lot of the standards folks and the working groups hang out. And then there's also Wasm Builders, which is a community uh, for people to show off what they've built with WebAssembly, learn about how it works and all these kinds of things. Um, so if you go to wasm.builders, uh, that is a really great resource for folks who are just learning. 
So that's the place to drop in your Kubernetes that runs inside of WebAssembly. That's exactly right. Nice. <laughs> you know where to now put least, it now, Will, when you have it done. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting a countdown timer. So I'm curious, how does WebAssembly work with cryptographically secure random number generators? I mean, not all hardware necessarily supports that. Does, does WASM like give you an exception if it can't generate proper randomness? Yeah, exactly. So this is a really great way to describe how the WebAssembly host-guest relationship works. Okay. So if I am writing a program, that program needs access to randomness. There are syscalls across most operating systems that let you like arc for random or something like that, where mm-hmm. the, the operating system will essentially use some hardware voodoo under the hood to generate something close to true randomness and then just give that back to you. In WebAssembly, that is just like everything else, a host call that can or cannot be mounted to the runtime when you start it up. And so if I go and run that program, but I haven't given it a host implementation of randomness, yeah, it will throw an exception and it will not work at all because that's, you know, that is the deny by default nature of WebAssembly. But if you do provide that that host call, it can come from a variety of different places, right? So if I'm running that WebAssembly module in the browser, the browser APIs could be used to supply that randomness, right? There are there are um, there are crypto primitives inside of inside of Chrome, Firefox, whatever that can be plugged into that host call to provide that randomness. But then, if I run that same WebAssembly module in Wasm time on a Linux machine, Wasm time can plug in, you know, the the standard Linux syscall implementation of randomness to supply the same thing. And to the guest code, to the to the code inside the WebAssembly module. It doesn't care. It doesn't know what's going on. It doesn't know where that source is coming from. It's just calling, asking for some randomness and getting back something. So you could theoretically, and I don't recommend that you do this, but you could theoretically, you know, provide a host implementation of that random function that just returns four every single time. (laughs) And you could screw up a lot of people's day. But this is where WASI is really helpful, right? Because it is a set of, you know, really well-defined and and well-tested implementation for these kinds of things. Four seems pretty random to me. I don't see the problem. (laughs) I mean, it's much more random than 42. Yeah, I I thought you were going to say 42, but then you said four. Totally random. I'm pretty sure I'm quoting an XKCD. (laughs) So back on on suborbital, you, you talk about hosting functions like untrusted functions, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of specific examples of that to just like to relate it because I'm pretty slow to grasp concepts, so I look for things I can relate to. I'm thinking like you know everything I write has like a it sends logs to my logging facility, whether that's Datadog or Splunk or whatever, or I send metrics to Grafana. Would you consider like those? log and metric collection services to be good things to implement and deploy? Like assuming that I had like things all over the world that were just shooting info to my logging facility to to deploy that as a, as a function out on, out on the cloud edge or edge cloud. Yeah, that's definitely something you could use it for. So what we, what we strive to do is, is just give you plugin points in the logic of whatever it is you're building. And so in the logging and metrics use case, you could implement the actual logging and metrics systems itself in WebAssembly. You could definitely do that. But what we're more focused on is allowing the end user of one of those systems to modify and customize how it behaves in the first place. So if I have, you know, something like OpenTelemetry, for example, it is sucking in uh, metrics from potentially 
thousands or millions of different places around the world, and it is storing them and it's making them queryable. And what I could do is I could add uh, a plugin to that system where anytime I receive, you know, my user count metric, I could go in and I could tweak that. I could, um, you know, run it through a check against a separate system to make sure that the ch- that the numbers are accurate, or I could augment that with, uh, you know, you're telling me how many users I have. Okay. How many, how many, um, you know, functions have that user deployed or something like that. Like you can run custom logic in that chain. So we could actually right inside of an open telemetry service, you could add a plugin so that the user of that system could define custom logic that happens as those metrics are being ingested, for example. And so one way to think about it is a much faster webhook. Right. So today, right. when you have a SaaS application and you want to do something custom, usually what you're doing is you're deploying a server that receives a webhook and mm-hmm. you're entering a random URL, like a like a Lambda URL into that SaaS app. And it's just throwing post requests over the fence and you have to handle it on your deployed code somewhere. So the prospect of WebAssembly plugins is that instead of that whole dance, let's allow the user to just give us a little snippet of code. We'll compile it to WebAssembly and we'll run it inside the SaaS application itself so that we don't need to send traffic over the public internet. We don't incur that huge latency. We don't have the security problems that go along with it, but the user can still insert their own custom logic. And that's what I find is the best way to, to describe what we're doing here. Right on. Cool. So I, I wanted to get back to the comment I started to make a minute ago. Correct me if I'm wrong. You is are. It fair to say that WebAssembly, <laughs> you know, I'm, all right, I'm, I'm wrong. There's no point in finishing the question. <laughs> Just assume I'm wrong. <laughs> No, to me, when, every time I hear about WebAssembly, I'm reminded of Donald Knuth's book, uh, The Art of Computer Programming, where he invents a, a language. I think it's called Mix. It's an assembly language that is it's hyper simple. It's designed for the purpose of educating people about how computers work. It's not designed for real hardware, but neither is WebAssembly, right? Uh, of course, the difference is that WebAssembly is designed to actually be executed and it's designed to be useful and fast. But from a conceptual standpoint, it's quite similar, I, I think. You know, it's it's... We have some registers here and we have a block of memory and here's how you and here's the instructions you can use to, to, to operate on it. And of course, with this mixed language, there are emulators that you can use for the purpose of, of education. But with WebAssembly, you know, people do real things with it, not just learning uh, how to how to write assembly. <laughs> Is that yeah. a fair comparison? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, like WebAssembly, as you say, it has a set of instructions like it's a stack based VM. It manages virtual memory. It has all the things that you need to to run code and the fact that you know that code is originating from a rust code base or a go code base is is almost irrelevant right because at the end of the day we have this common format now uh, where we can just know for a fact that you know the the instructions and the way that memory is manipulated is going to conform to the standard and if it doesn't basically just kick it out seems reasonable what other questions should we be asking what, what's your favorite topic that we haven't touched on yet i think you've covered your bases pretty well the you know why would i use it what is it useful for some people like to delve into language support because there's some interesting things there. But uh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a I have a sense that lots and lots of like like any mainstream language has WebAssembly support. But maybe I'll be surprised. Uh, what, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, so there are a whole spectrum of different language support types. I think I would call them. Mm-hmm. There are the languages that essentially build it in as a first-class citizen, right? So there's Rust. Rust from the beginning has had a really well-supported first-tier WebAssembly target. And then you have languages like Python and Ruby, where 
they're just now getting around to adding officially supported distributions for WebAssembly. So I think in the next release of CPython, or maybe the one that just happened, they added WebAssembly as an officially supported platform in CPython. And so we can now say for, you know, pretty, pretty certain that Python is going to support this thing for the for the foreseeable future. And it's not just some person's random fork of the Python interpreter that, you know, will, will need to be used. And so there's a bunch of different stories like that. And the same thing applies to JavaScript, right? We now have officially supported builds of SpiderMonkey that are intended to be, you know, uh, distributed as, as WebAssembly. And so as we move forward, uh, we're going to see more and more support for for WebAssembly, both from the compiled languages like Go and Rust, but also from the interpreted languages like like Python and Ruby. And then you have this kind of third category, I guess, um, of languages that were specifically built for WebAssembly and they don't support anything else. So, you know, Grain uh, is a great example of this. Uh, Assembly Script is another example where these languages were designed around the, the spec and the constraints of WebAssembly to begin with. And it's entirely possible that we will see use cases and design paradigms built around these languages because they are specifically you know, targeting this this new way of running code. Interesting. Now, some uh, traditionally interpreted languages, I think, will give you the option to com- to be compiled. Like I used to be a Perl developer. I know that they had some uh, some options to, or experimental mm-hmm. probably, to, to compile your Perl into something that might be faster. Of course, you you have some some downsides with that, or, or maybe upsides depending on your your perspective. You know, you, you can't necessarily just like have your program rewrite itself like you can. Uh, <laughs> In in uh, many interpreted languages, you, know, you can't just do an eval and expect it to do something meaningful. Mm-hmm. But I imagine you have the exact same trade-offs w- when you're taking a language like Python or Perl or JavaScript and executing it in WebAssembly. You can either just interpret it with a WebAssembly, you know, an interpreter running in WebAssembly, like you said, the SpiderMonkey, or you could try to compile it to something compiled with the normal caveats. Or is there is there some new nuance when you're using uh, WebAssembly? Yeah, so uh, there are some very interesting use cases where people are compiling code to WebAssembly and then compiling that WebAssembly back to native code. Um, so there is a uh, there's actually some components of Firefox, I believe, where they wrote the original code in Rust, they compiled that Rust to WebAssembly, and then for each distribution of Firefox, they would compile it back to x86 or, or whatever bytecode, and then include that as a static library in the, the Firefox distribution. Uh, and I forget the exact details of what they were doing with it, but it was essentially because they wanted to add that extra layer of sandboxing. Because when you take WebAssembly bytecode and you transpile it to you know a, a platform native format, you still have all of the same memory guarantees. You still have all of the same properties of WebAssembly, but you have essentially converted it into some platform native assembly. And so there are some pretty wacky things going on uh, like that. I don't know if that's going to become the norm, right? Maybe we just use, maybe we see a world in which WebAssembly is used as an intermediate stage to just add a layer of security onto native binaries. That, that's possible. I don't think that's where things are going, um, but there is definitely a use case for it. I think the norm will be, you know, web, the WebAssembly binary itself is the artifact that I'm deploying. And then the runtime that it, you know, eventually ends up inside is just able to, to run it natively. 
I don't know if I answered your question, but I think there's so, some yeah. there's some cool stuff going on there. I'm curious about WebAssembly runtimes built into operating systems. Like I, I could I could easily see maybe mm. it's already happened. You know, I could easily see the Linux kernel having a, a WASM runtime built in, so it can just execute. WebAssembly as close to the bare metal as possible. Is that something that you see happening or or coming? So I think what you're describing is eBPF, right? eBPF was effectively a sandbox designed specifically for the purposes of running inside of a kernel. I think I've seen somebody get WebAssembly running inside of eBPF, which is just a you know a, a, another layer that breaks the brain a little bit. But um, yeah, for something like the kernel where you are very tightly constrained and you have a very, very, very strict set of things that you can and absolutely world-endingly cannot do. I think having a specific virtualization technology for that does make some sense, which is why eBPF exists. Uh, I think WebAssembly is a little bit too generic to be in the kernel itself. Now, if you're saying, you know, future Linux distributions will ship with a WebAssembly runtime just as part of a standard distro, like, you know, you get curl and you get a WebAssembly runtime as part of a standard toolkit, that I could absolutely see happening. But Mm -hmm. uh, WebAssembly in the kernel itself, I don't know. Okay, cool. Is it time for picks? I think so. I mean, I'm... Sounds good. Yeah, cool. Let's do some picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Do you have any ready for us, Will? I do. I've got, it'll be a show and tell for you too, but it's an audio pick for our listeners because this is a podcast. (laughs) So this week I've got, it's a wallet called Steel Wallet. So I've got my seed phrases for my crypto wallets that are written down on a piece of paper and stored in a supposedly fireproof safe in my house. But then it dawned on me, you know, while the safe may be fireproof, it doesn't mean it's not going to get really hot in there. And either way, in the event of flooding, well, they didn't make any promises about flooding. They said fireproof. And so I was kind of worried about those seed phrases. Not that I have like a ton of crypto, but I would be a little bummed to lose what I do have. (laughs) So I ended up buying this thing, the Steel Wallet. It's got support for two wallets on these steel little trays. And it comes with a whole bunch of letters that are already pre-stamped. Some of these steel type wallets they send you some letters and a little hammer and you have to stamp your own letters. And I was like, uh, yeah, how about no? So I got this one. The letters are pre-stamped and then you slide them into the little tray here and then the tray locks shut so that the letters don't fall out whenever you move it around or carry it. And then I thought this was a really cool feature that I wasn't expecting. It's got these little security stickers. So once you put your phrase in there and you close the lever, You put this little sticker over it and it's one of those stickers that once you peel it off, it completely screws up the sticker so you can tell that it's been tampered with. It was kind of pricey. It was $75 US for that, but the quality seems pretty good and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. So that's my pick of the week. That's Steel Wallet. That's the brand name? That is the brand name. S-T-E-A-L, right? Like you're stealing. (laughs) No, no, that's the other part of crypto. That's next week's pick. (laughs) Uh, Steel wallet, S-T-E, now S-T-E-E-L wallet. I'm not even going to try to spell wallet now. (laughs) Q-U. Right? (laughs) Is this a sobriety test? (laughs) 
Uh, we would fail that every week. Hey, this is not how I saw my intervention going down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to, ha- I have, a, I have two picks. The first one, actually, I picked last week and I'm going to pick it again. It's some sh- shameless self-promotion. My new YouTube channel, Boldly Go, is boldly going and it's, uh, it's, I'm having fun with it. So I've just uploaded another video this afternoon. Um, nice. Go tutorials and stuff like that. So if you're, if you're learning Go or want to learn Go, check out Boldly Go on YouTube. My other pick, uh, it's kind of related. I have a, uh, I bought a used 21-inch monitor about a year and a half ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a 16 by 9 monitor that I use when I'm making my, my tutorial videos so I can easily capture the proper 16 by 9 aspect ratio on the screen. Because before that, I was using, I have a double wide monitor and it's really, really hard to get a window exactly the right size so that it, you know, it, it captures correctly. But I had this problem that this 21 inch monitor was way too big for that purpose. Not because I couldn't see it, but because I could see really small text that when it uh, gets transcribed into a, a YouTube video, especially on a phone, that text is super tiny. Yeah. So I did some shopping and I found a nice little 14 inch IPS full HD monitor. Uh, it's called, the brand is ZF. TVNIE. I don't know if you're supposed to pronounce that or what. Honestly, I don't think the brand matters that much. I found about three or four different options. They're about between 100 and 120 bucks. So not not so bad. There are some really expensive ones. You get touchscreen options and stuff like that. Some are as much as three or four or five hundred dollars. But I really like it. It's super crisp image. It's a 1920 by 1080 resolution, which is what I wanted. You can also get cheaper ones if you want if you want lower resolution. But I wanted I wanted full HD for my videos. So that's my second pick. Um, it's it, again the brand isn't so important, but just having a 14 inch monitor. It sits right above my my monitor, and so I, it's next to my webcam, so I can. Basically, it looks like almost looks like I'm looking at my webcam when I'm looking at the the monitor. So kind of like a teleprompter. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it, w- it would be a little bit nicer if it was directly in front of the cam for that purpose, but uh, it's close enough for for government work here. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, uh, I think my pick, uh, something that I've been very enamored with lately, is Google Cloud recently released their ARM VMs uh, based on the. Ampere platform. And I know they're like an early beta, but they've been super, super rock solid for us. We want to run everything on ARM because the price, you know, price performance ratio you get there is so good. And ARM has become so ubiquitous, especially, you know, MacBooks and all that stuff in the last couple of years that we've basically been developing ARM first, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about. But yeah, until recently, you know, the, the ARM offerings we're fairly sparse and we are not an AWS shop. And so while the Graviton line is very, very cool, uh, it was not something available to us because we're just not uh, on the AWS bandwagon. And so having ARM machines available in Google Cloud has been super awesome. And they're 100% compatible with all the things we need to do. We're terraforming them. We're doing all sorts of automation and they've been really, really good. Sweet. Nice. I'm still waiting for those virtual Commodore 64s to come to Google. <laughs> <laughs> so one last question. Uh, we had Matt and Taylor on the show. We're trying to get both of them back to an in-person show with folding chairs and um, arena-style event to see who's WASM platform reigns supreme. Are you in <laughs> to make this a three-way match? 
I'm so in. Sounds fun. Oh, sweet. Right on. <laughs> right on. Start picking out your uh, Lucha Libre mask. <laughs> Did I just sign up for a cage match? <laughs> Maybe. <I think> so. <laughs> yeah. And it's been recorded. You can't back out now. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> awesome. Very good. Well, I, I think that's a wrap. It's been yep. a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Hope to talk to you again soon at our, our cage match. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds right great. on. See you guys. Have a good one. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.